wish that you had volunteered for children's ministry uh, after you hear this sermon. Uh, just a disclaimer, you know, we're on the second part of uh, just a two-part heaven and hell. Our, our destiny is either in heaven or hell. And of course, we talked about heaven last week, so what would that leave us to talk about this week? And I just want you to know where we're going before we uh, get started here. But, uh, you know, we've seen that God uh, intends for hope to be such a defining factor in our lives that other people actually notice it and ask us questions like, what's the reason for you being such a hopeful person? What's the reason for you being so optimistic? How is it that you're such a positive person? Always be ready, the Bible. So let me read it for you, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, set apart, separate from everything and everybody. And then says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So I always... Again, I said this last week, feel convicted, right? When's the last time somebody asked you, why are you such a hopeful, optimistic, positive person? You know, and here's the Bible telling, God telling us, his people, hey, always be ready to give a reason for why you're so optimistic and why you're so hopeful. And so um, we've talked about this for quite a while now, uh, a, a life that's filled with hope. And uh, a huge part of that hope uh, develops when we're confident of our eternal destiny, when we know that we're going to end up in heaven. It creates a hope inside of us that's unmistakable, that makes us optimistic. In spite of whatever comes to us in this life, we are confident that we have this eternal place called heaven that Jesus went to prepare for us, and that's going to be beyond our imagination wonderful. And so when we think about this and we begin to kind of process this, you know, we realize there are only two options for our eternal destiny, heaven or hell. And uh, if we're not confident in heaven, it probably means that we haven't put our hope completely in Jesus Christ. And instead, we've placed at least some of our hope in someone or something else, you know, that's going to make everything right uh, at the end of the day. But the truth is that there is a way of uh, spending eternity in heaven and knowing confidently that that's where we're going to be someday. If you go around and just kind of ask people, what do you think, after you die, do you think you'll be in heaven or hell? Well, most everybody says, well, I'm going to heaven. And uh, if you ask them, then why? Why do you think that way? I would guarantee you 90% of the people will say, because I'm a good person or some version of that. And it's all wrong. It's all confused and mistaken. The only way that heaven becomes a reality for us is through what Jesus did on the cross, through the gospel, the good news. So last week I mentioned a survey that the Pew Research People Center you know, did in 2021. And they went around and asked people, a sample of American adults, um, their views on heaven and hell. And so... Uh, 73% of adult Americans believe in heaven. When then asked about hell, 62% said they believe in hell, about 11% less than who believe in heaven. 
If you take out the 18 to 29-year-old age group, uh, the percentage of people who believe in hell drops to 55%. And if you separate men from women, men are 6% less likely to believe in hell, the reality of hell. And if you go to the unaffiliated people, right, who have no religion, no faith, no connection with any church or anything else, 28% of those people believe in hell. And uh, we go back to, remember in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says, God has put eternity in people's hearts. So even if you haven't heard any place, somehow people have a notion, you know, we're made in the likeness of God, who's eternal, and people have this sense that, you know, there is life beyond uh, our life. Um, now, not everybody gets their information from the Bible, but um, God does put eternity in people's hearts. Now, over the years, I, I've probably done hundreds of funerals. And um, I would tell you that I was thinking back over this, this past week, I was thinking back over funerals. I can only remember two funerals that I did where the relatives of the deceased person came and said to me, uh, I'm sure that so-and-so is in hell. <laughs> I mean, I had two uh, situations where, you know, the family thought it was obvious that that's where the person was, gonna, was destined to go. So almost, while people will say, I believe in hell, almost ne no one thinks they're going there. <laughs> Isn't that right? Maybe you heard about uh, the pastor, and he had these two brothers in his church. There was a pastor, and he was uh, putting an addition on his church, and he needed money. And uh, there were these two brothers that were really bad news. They were in and out of jail all the time. They were selling drugs. They were doing anything you can think of, they were doing it. Uh, but they had a grandmother, and the grandmother came to that pastor's church, and every time those two brothers visited Graham, she brought him to church. Okay, so one of the brothers died. And uh, the other brother called up the pastor and said, would you do my brother's funeral? And uh, the pastor said, well, let me think about it. And he said, uh, listen, you need money, don't you? He said, you're trying to finish this addition on your building and so forth. I'll tell you what, I will give you a million dollars if you will just say during the funeral, my brother was a saint. So the pastor said, well, let me think about it. So the brother that was living called him back, said, well, are you going to do my brother's funeral? And the pastor said, okay, I'll do his funeral. So the day of the funeral came, people from the church came, and uh, the pastor got going in the funeral and so forth. And at one point in the funeral, he said, you know, uh, compared to his brother, this guy was a saint. <laughs> Give me the million bucks. Ah, but you know what? Even if we claim the Bible as our source, right, for what we believe and how we think and so forth, there's a huge uh, distinction, I think, between people who think that the meaning and the interpretation of the Bible is decided by the reader rather than having the meaning and the interpretation of what is written being decided by the author or the writer of the scriptures, a huge difference. If you've ever been to a Bible study and somebody says, well, this is what this means to me. You know, what we really wanna know, especially with the Bible, because who's the author? God, 
We really want to know, God, what are you saying to us? What do we need to hear from you? Rather than saying, well, you know, we have to kind of update the Bible to our uh, times, and the times are different now, and we have to modernize and change the scripture so it fits, you know, kind of our modern day thinking type thing. That's a huge mistake. So there's a difference, you know, that uh, uh, kind of comes up when we talk about especially difficult things with those who think that the reader rather than the writer determines the meaning. So in the Bible, uh, and especially uh, on the lips of Jesus, we discover that actually uh, the Bible and Jesus in particular talk more about heaven, uh, I mean hell, than heaven. There's more in the Bible written about hell than there is about heaven. And uh, I think that's kind of significant to remember. Uh, And a lot of what Jesus teaches us about our eternal destiny, you know, uh, there's Matthew 24, which is a, a block of teaching, and then there's the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But beside that, most of what Jesus teaches us about uh, hell in particular comes in stories, in parables. Now, if you were here last week, perhaps you remember in Luke chapter 16, Jesus talked about two people who died, the rich man and Lazarus, right? They both died, but they went to different places. And Jesus tells that story, and we uh, kind of picked that apart a little bit last week. But um, in, in the Bible, in Matthew especially, Uh, Jesus tells a lot of stories, and I just wanted to highlight a couple to kind of get us started here. But uh, you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about the uh, wheat and the weeds. Remember, the farmer goes out, sows wheat. The enemy comes in, sows weeds. The plants start to grow, and the disciples are like, hey, you know, should we pull out the weeds, the bad guys? And, uh, you know, no, no, let's let them grow together. But at the end, there'll be a harvest, and that's when we'll separate you know, what's good from what's bad. And the disciples didn't understand the whole parable, so they come to Jesus, and they ask him, hey, what was that all about? And uh, Jesus answers them like this. He says, you know, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is actually the devil, and the harvest is at the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous, on the other hand, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's this you know, story about weeds and wheat and farmers and so forth. And But what Jesus is really talking about is the end of the age, like we've been talking about. And uh, the thing that's coming at the end of the age will be a judgment. And a judgment is a separation of right from wrong, of good from bad, of, you know, uh, truth from lies and so on. There's another uh, parable here in uh, Matthew chapter 13. I call it the uh, seafood parable in uh if you like seafood, but here's the deal. Let me read it to you. Uh, Verse 47 of Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down 
and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate evil from righteous and throw them into the the fiery furnace, and in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The separation of fish, people, uh, into heaven or hell. uh, An eternal destiny. And uh, again, um, you might remember some of these. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus talks about a wedding feast. The king's son is getting married and all these people are invited and they all show up. But there's one guy who shows up and he's not dressed right, remember? And he's kicked out. And again, go to this same place. Uh, It's talked about in um, Matthew 22. In Matthew chapter 25, um, you might remember there are bridesmaids, right? And there's a wedding and the idea of Jesus coming and the church being his bride and coming back together and and being ready for that occasion, you know, and the bridesmaids, half of them have oil so that they're ready and the other half ran out of oil, they're not ready. And uh, Jesus talks about those of us who will be ready and we're looking forward to the Lord's return and we're prepared, we're waiting for him, you know, and so we adjust our lives accordingly and those who aren't paying a whole lot of attention to the fact that someday Jesus is coming back, they're not gonna be ready and they're gonna be out in the cold. And, uh, and then he also talks about, you remember the, um, uh, the three servants who are given different talents. You know, the, this one has five and this one has three and this one has one. And the guy with one goes and buries it because he's afraid that the Lord is tough and he doesn't want to mess up. And so he never uses the gifts that God has given him, the talents that God has given him and use it to advance God's kingdom. And again, there's this judgment at the end when the Lord comes back and, and he talks about it. And so in all of these stories, Jesus returns. Nobody knows the exact time, but there's always this judgment, this separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. And ultimately, finally, uh, it'll be in heaven or hell. And in fact, the Bible comes right out in um, Hebrews and says this. But as it is, it's the way it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That was his first coming, right? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I always think of this verse that God has set an appointment for us to die. Sometimes people say, wow, I died early, or, you know, uh, wow, you know, I lived a long time. What, what if it's actually God has set an appointment for us to die? You know, it, it, here's what it says, right? And just as it is appointed for a man once to die. Somebody, uh, well, we'll do that some other day. Um, and after that comes the judgment. After we die, we will be judged, Okay. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. Those who are anticipating this separation, this judgment. There are three uh, judgments that uh, come in association with the Lord's return. Three different judgments that the Bible talks about. Uh, One other place here where uh, I think This is an interesting passage that talks about uh, where we're at today. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, you know, um, was in Athens, and he had the opportunity to address a crowd. And uh, here's what he said at the end of his uh, 
talk, he said, you know, the times of ignorance got overlooked. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, to stop, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's willing to overlook times of ignorance in the past, but at this point in time, God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, to stop putting their backs toward God, to turn around, face God, embrace Jesus as their Savior, and because God created us to be in heaven with him, and that's what he desires, that all people would be saved. And so the Bible speaks of three different judgments in association with the Lord coming back. Okay, and the first is uh, called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And uh, the Greek word is bima, in case you've heard that word, the bima seat, judgment. And this is a judgment for us Christians. This is a judgment where we will be evaluated by the Lord for what we did with the life that he entrusted to us. And uh, there it's, uh, I think it's the reason why we Christians you know, don't judge each other. In uh, Romans chapter 14 and uh, in verse 10, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to this church, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Here's why we don't judge each other in the church, right? Why do you pass judgment, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, right? For this is how it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee is going to bow to me, every tongue is going to confess uh, to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're God's servants, right? And God will evaluate our life of response to him. And so we don't need to judge each other because we have this judgment coming where God will take care of it. And so I don't have to make you right. You don't have to make me right. You can help me to be more right, but you don't have to judge me because somewhere along the line, I'm going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, DeVries, why didn't you do this? Or, hey, I'm so glad that you did that. And why is this judgment in place? It's for rewards. It's not for condemnation, but it's for commentation, right? It's to commend us, and we're given various rewards in heaven for how we invested our lives on behalf of the kingdom of God over the course of our lifetime. Uh, our lives will be evaluated. And I'm suggesting to you that this judgment will probably take place very soon after the rapture of the church, as I understand the scriptures. The second judgment uh, that you're probably familiar with as well is in uh, Matthew Matthew 25, you remember Matthew 24 is where we get all this teaching from Jesus. And then right after that, talking about his return and so forth, Matthew 25 is called uh, the judgment of the nations or the sheep and goat judgment. And uh, you remember this, this is where uh, Jesus talks about uh, the fact that uh, all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And uh, Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, the return of Jesus, and all the angels with him, he will, on his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne, 
and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I would suggest to let you know that the word for eternal uh, punishment and eternal life is the same word. Okay, so... We're talking about our eternal destinies. And these are the words, again, uh, straight off the lips of Jesus. And so this judgment, it seems to me, takes place at the very beginning or right before the millennial period, the thousand-year period where Christ reigns on earth, seems to be limited uh, to the people who are alive at the time when Christ comes back. And um, I would say to you that there are some people, uh, depending on your theology about Israel and so forth, but... Uh, there are several people who believe that this passage is about the nations and how they treat Israel uh, in the time of the Antichrist and the great, what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. And how the nations deal with Israel will be how God deals with these nations in this particular judgment. But that's, you know, the opinion of, of some people. And this is the passage, I think, if, if you read the rest of it, this is where if we give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, God remembers it, right? And we'll be rewarded for it. But if we don't, and we uh, could care less about what God's program is going on in the world, uh, then uh, we'll be separated out to the left. And again, uh, I think, um, you know, this is a kind of harsh thing, but uh, in Mark's gospel, in uh, Mark chapter uh, 9, Uh, I I think Mark's talking about the same thing here. And in Mark chapter 9, this is the passage where Jesus says some pretty radical things, you remember? And uh, people probably hear this and kind of write it off. But uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell in unquenchable fire. Jesus said this, right? And, uh, you know, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to enter life with two feet and be thrown into hell. And uh, if your eye causes you to sin, well, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire there. So, this is Jesus' description of hell, and it's, it's more horrible than we can imagine. Just like, you know, heaven is way better than we can even begin to imagine, hell is more horrible and more full of torment than we can even begin to imagine. And, um, and, and the scriptures talk about it, you know, pretty uh, openly. Uh, in Thessalonians, where we spent quite a bit of time, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and uh, verse 7, Again, uh, we're talking about when Christ comes back. And let me just read it for you. Uh, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the Lord. No chance. This isn't like purgatory. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, we die and we have a second chance. No. This isn't that at all. And he says, away from God and on those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. Then the the sentence continues, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Now I happen to think that uh, on the same day that the Lord comes to begin judgment against the world will be the same day that he comes to embrace the church and and the church will be raptured. But, and it comes a little bit from this passage, uh, on the same day uh, he'll come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed in him. I think we're going to, you know, if you love the Lord, right, we're going to be blown away on the day in which he comes. And this judgment will, you know, come against the world and they'll be blown away. But we'll, in totally different ways, we'll be marveling at the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, you know, of, of his presence and, and him coming and so forth. Anyway, all of that to say that there will be this judgment of the nations, okay? And then the third judgment is called the great white throne. And uh, this is the judgment that happens. It's talked about in uh, Revelation chapter 20. And this is the time when all of the people who have died since Adam and Eve will be raised to stand before the Lord in the great white throne judgment. Let me read a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is where the devil and the Antichrist eventually end up. If you just back up in this passage to verse 10, it says the devil who had deceived people was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur uh, where the beast or the Antichrist, as he's called in Revelation, uh, and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, uh, the Bible's image of fire. Have you ever, you know, just burned the end of your finger like on a hot stove or something? I, I have a friend who, um, he, he's, uh, uh, he was the assistant chief of a fire department in Westport, uh, Connecticut here. Anyway, he um, is very involved in a thing called burn camp. And the various fire departments come together and they run this camp for kids who get burned in car accidents or uh, pull over a boiling pot of uh, water on the stove. And I mean, it's just horrible stories of these kids. 
And then they uh, get them all to camp, give the parents a break from taking care of them. And, you know, they see that they're not just isolated by themselves and they're very withdrawn, you know, and this gives them a chance to kind of make some friends. And, uh, and he was explaining to me some of the uh, activities that they do in burn camp and how they try to help and come alongside. But burn, it's just like, it's like the worst image, I think. If you just even get a little burn on your finger, it really hurts, right? And, and you can't really stop it. You know, you run it underwater or whatever, but it doesn't really help. And so the Lord uses this image of fire and, uh, to describe hell. And uh, I think, you know, it, it's awful to just think about, you know, people who uh, have this uh, experience. The judgments and the outcomes uh, that are talked about in the New Testament are not new. They're also talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, you might remember that uh, we said that uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, is kind of like the backbone of prophecy. You know, uh, at least a quarter and up to a third of the entire Bible was prophetic when it was written. One of the ways God says, here's how you can know that I wrote the Bible is because, you know, and back in Isaiah, he says, because of all the prophecy that's in it, that comes true. And again, I like to talk about this. Like, I hope I'm not boring you, but all these prophecies of the first coming of Jesus were all fulfilled literally. It's 300 of them at least in the Old Testament. And they were all fulfilled literally when Jesus came. Well, there's eight times as many prophecies about Jesus' second coming as there is about his first. And it's all there for us to digest and to, you know, it has a profound effect on us when we begin to realize this is real. This is true. And uh, when we stop saying, well, I'm just too busy to think about what my future is, that's a big mistake. Because here's God giving us a ton of information uh, about it. But and back in Daniel, which is kind of the backbone of prophecy, it's where we get the timeline from, um, and he talks about this, the very last chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 1 says this, At that time, talking about the second coming, Michael, the great prince, Michael is an angel, remember in the Bible, uh, Michael's an archangel, and uh, he has several uh, jobs, but one of the job that he has here is to protect Israel. And uh, it says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. He's talking to Daniel, right? And uh, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Does that sound familiar to you? Those are the exact words that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Jesus quotes Daniel in that passage to link these two passages so we know we're talking about the same thing. At that time, your people shall be delivered, right? That's Michael's job. Uh, he's going to rise and deliver the people, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, we're back in Daniel in the Old Testament. Everlasting life and everlasting contempt. Uh, everlasting being the same word. And again, I think, you know, uh, how horrible this is to think about the realities of hell. Everybody believes there is a hell, you know, uh, for the most part. But nobody thinks they're going there. And uh, we seldom want to camp out on this. 
I'm doing this so that whoever the new pastor is when he comes doesn't have to do this, right? You know, like, I'm thinking, well, what would I not want to talk about for three or four years in a new church, right? Well, this would be one of them, right? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those, uh, and those with him turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who turn other people to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Those are the two groups of people. So contempt, you know, uh, I looked it up in the dictionary. Uh, these obviously are opposites, one's heaven, one's hell. But to be uh, despised forever uh, with contempt, to be disrespected, to be considered despicable, uh, to be considered wretched um, for all of eternity. Um, and this, by the way, is the only place in the entire Old Testament where the two words everlasting life ever appear in the whole Old Testament. Um, the concept appears, but this is the only place in the Old Testament where everlasting life is held out. Everlasting is the word olam. And uh, I think in Psalm 90, we read these words, which gives us a definition of what everlasting means. Uh, before the mountains were brought forth and uh, uh, before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What does it mean, you know, uh, to have eternal life or eternal contempt. And so we're made in the likeness of God. Uh, we, you know, are eternal and we sense it. And these are our destinies. So another prophecy about uh, this, that Daniel's just saying the same thing, uh, you know, that the New Testament is saying, and uh, Isaiah. At the very end of Isaiah, uh, probably the... Uh, most prominent prophet in the Old Testament, the very end of Isaiah. He's looking forward, he's thinking about destiny, he's looking forward and he says this, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So hell is an everlasting uh, punishment, everlasting, uh, the, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, everlasting destruction. You know, you'd like to think destruction. Well, destroy it, it ends, it's over, it's done. No. The idea of destruction is that uh, of ruin, like uh, uh, hell is a place where everything gets ruined. Everything just keeps getting ruined. Everything, every hope gets dashed. Every dream gets shot down. Every eternal destruction, just living with that ongoing, nothing ever is going to work out right and good and make you happy. And so I'm just trying to show that, you know, what's in the New Testament comes out of the Old Testament. Much of it is quoted from the Old Testament. Even the words of Jesus are quoted many times from the Old Testament. Well, uh, back in the 1920s, uh, there was a, a very heated argument going on in the United States Senate. And uh, one man uh, told one of his colleagues, one senator to another, uh, to go to hell. In the heat of uh, what was going on, 
that was said. And the astonished senator who received that uh, turned to Vice President Coolidge at that time, who was presiding over the meeting, and uh, wanted to know, is that allowed? Is that proper for him to be able to talk to me like that? And Coolidge, who had been leafing through a book, looked up and he said this. He said, I've been checking the rules manual and you don't have to go. (laughs) Now, he quipped about it and so forth. But, you know, uh, we have the rules manual and nobody has to go to hell. God has made a provision for us through Jesus so that nobody has to ever go to hell. And that's God's desire. Uh, God doesn't desire for anybody to perish, but for all uh, to come and experience the life that God wants to give. And I think it's so important for us to to take two things away from this message this morning. Um, Number one, I think it ought to give us some urgency about... uh, sharing with people we care about the gospel. You know what? Sometimes I worry, okay, myself just personally, I worry that we're going to get on the other side, we're going to die, and there's going to be people there who are my friends and some of my family, and they're going to look at me and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? You know? And I want to be able to say, I tried. Don't you remember when we had this conversation? Don't you remember when you came over and we got into a conversation about this and so forth? I want to be able to say, you know I tried to help you understand that Jesus came so nobody would have to go to hell. You know? And uh, so uh, I think that's the first thing. This ought to make us have a sense of urgency about, um, you know, sharing the gospel, the good news with the people we care about and with the people that God has put under our influence. I want to create a sense of urgency. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to end up in hell. And I got a few of those. But I would not want them even to end up in the place that the Bible describes. And then the second, I think, kind of lesson that we take away or the so what that we take away from all of this is uh, Peter writes this, and you know, it's in Peter here that he says, you know, the day of the Lord's going to come, and you know, uh, God is patient; He doesn't want anybody to perish uh, in hell. And then the second thing he says, uh, since all these things are like this, what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought we to be in the way that we live on God's behalf in the midst of our culture and our generation? so that other people can see the hope that's in us, the truth that's in us, you know, the joy that's in us, all the fruits of the Spirit that God gives, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those kinds of things, you know, that uh, we ought to be. What kind of people, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness is going to dwell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. And uh, you are a holy, holy, holy God, as we sang this morning. And Lord, we're so thankful that you have made a way for us. We're not holy. We've all fallen short of what you've made us to be. You made us to be like you 
and we're not, and we admit it. And we humbly come before you totally dependent on what you did for us on the cross through Jesus' blood. And Father, I pray that, you know, I I bet that all of us have people that we're concerned about. And may we uh, just ratchet up a notch uh, our concern so that we're willing to share and take risks that would enable us, Father, to speak into people's lives before it's too late. And may we also just be mindful, Father, that people watch us and that the way we live matters and that you're watching us and that someday we'll be evaluated and that, you know, I remember when Jesus said, you know, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven and uh, the way we live now matters and it will be evaluated. And so maybe we could all just step up a notch with that as well uh, and that we would be willing to let go of something else in order that we might have more of you. And we do thank you, Father, that you uh, are with us 100%, and you will stick with us for all of eternity. We thank you for the many blessings that come our way because of your love for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.